And uh, let's just start with a quick word of prayer. Um, I'm going to read some testimonies here, but I, I want them to be on the, uh, the sermon that we put up on, on YouTube. So let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for that profoundly beautiful and spiritual and moving prayer that Robin just prayed. Lord, I just want to ask now specifically that you will be with us in the study of Scripture. Um, may the inspiring spirit, the spirit that moved upon holy men of old as they wrote May he now come into this room and be the instructing spirit, and may we come away with a better understanding of who you are, of who we are, and what the world is. Teach us, Father, how to live, not as the world, but in the world, a part of it, and teach us how to live for its benefit and for its good. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. Well, I want to start not getting right into the sermon. Every week, I get testimonies from people, and I often feel selfish because I get to read these testimonies, and I just think, oh, man, these are so amazing. These are great, and and many of you don't get to hear them. So would you like to hear some testimonies from people that are being benefited by the programs that are on on our YouTube channel and also from Hope Channel as well? So this is from David in the United States. He says, David, I just have to say the first Adventist pastor I heard was you. I disagreed with, you disagreed with everything I had ever believed, but I kept listening anyway. Then I began to study for myself to prove you wrong. All I did was prove you right, and that was eight years ago. God bless you, my friend, even though we have never met David. This is from Carrie. She writes, Dear Pastor Ashrick, I'm so grateful for your ministry. My husband is a truth seeker and is growing in grace through your concise and succinct, truth-filled, historical, and biblically-based messages. I am grateful for your method of presentations. An Adventist from birth and by choice, I appreciate the more in-depth historical presentation, which has brought my beloved husband to know that God is love. Your God series on Hope Channel has been tremendously helpful and enlightening. I have watched my husband grow from fearing hell, claiming that he's just a puppet and feeling betrayed and hated by God, to a man depending and praying to God and telling him that he loves him, loves God. My husband will be in heaven because you have accepted the call and have devoted your life to sharing the love that you know, the love of our amazing Heavenly Father. Blessings to you and your ministering family. Sincerely, Carrie. Amen. Beautiful. Dear Pastor Asherick, this is a really sad one. I won't read the whole thing here, but I just wanted you to get a feel for the kinds of people that are listening to these programs. Dear David Asherick, we are two young men aged 30 and 27. We are suffering from cerebral palsy and multiple sclerosis since birth. So our lives are pretty miserable, dark, and with only a little hope for the future. We live in a dull, dreary nursing home where almost nothing happens, and our parents left us here when we were very small. They have not visited us since then. Our childhoods have been very lonely without any mother or father figures. They then go into a long email describing how they've been blessed by the programs, and they say, 1,000 thanks in advance. You are an inspiration to us. Love from Sweden. Can you say amen? Thank you, Jesus. My dear David, I am an old owl that every day tries to find new sermons, lectures, and seminars of the, from the members of Lightbearers online. I can't get enough of the insights that you guys receive from the Holy Spirit. My soul reverberates with the Lord through you guys. When I learned about the recent cyclone, my first thought was, Australia, Kingscliff, David, and his church family. I prayed to God that you would not be in the path of disaster, and I knew the Arise program was going on, 
and that was something that could mess up their Bible studies. Little did I know that all the students were out um, giving such hands-on lessons about the gospel in such a manner. With his love and mine, Patty from Houston, Texas. Amen? People praying for our local church and our local community from all over the world. Hi, Pastor David. Just a note to say thank you for a great Bible study yesterday. Uh, an, an excellent exegesis of the book of Jonah. We both left the church feeling spiritually fed. These are people that were with us in our church. Dear Pastor David, I've wanted to contact you for many years. You are such a blessing to many, especially me. I've, I have been a fan of you for years, as I mentioned. However, my husband, Reggie, claimed he couldn't watch you as it made him nervous. Your back-and-forth moves and rapid-fire delivery were just beyond him. Knowing Reggie, this didn't surprise me. He was speechless when I told him that I would record and then watch you on DVD mode at 1.3 speed, which saves about 20 minutes per hour, requiring complete attention and focus on my part, but still doable. When I found you on YouTube, I suggested to my husband that maybe we could tolerate just 10 minutes of you, David, and it worked. Now he will watch an entire sermon with me, and we are both blessed and amazed at how deep you get us into God's living word. Accustomed to watching older series that you were already uploaded, we were almost disappointed to see that we have to wait for the next week installment of In the Felly of Abish, where hopefully, hopefully we'll watch part three tonight. We can't wait for it to upload from Sherry. A couple more. Oh, this is uh, from somebody right here local. Uh, Dear David, I live in Burley Waters and was visiting your church yesterday for the first time. I now intend to be there as often as possible, if not every Sabbath. I thought your talk was very interesting, informative, and enjoyable, and that your delivery was enthusiastic, expressive, engaging, and about the best I've encountered in an Adventist church, of which I have been a part and now I'm a member for about 25 years. Thank you and well done. I have seen far too much of the opposite. Blessings, Christopher. And Christopher is here today. I met him just this morning, sitting right there. Thank you, Christopher, for that lovely email. Okay, two more. Hi, Pastor Ashrick. This is from Jamaica. I have been keeping up with your church's latest studies on the, books of, on the book of Jonah, and I feel impressed by the Spirit to tell you to keep doing what you're doing, to give your congregation a sense of its God-given identity. I'm a part of the Seventh-day Adventist church here in Jamaica. And he goes on. It's a long email. Thank you so much for your work. And then finally, I thought this was kind of a cute one. This is from an Australian, and I, I, I saved this one for last because I knew you'd like it. Hi, David. Your publicly available sermons on YouTube are a great blessing. Thank you and all of your colleagues for that. And thank you to Violetta for her ministry of love and support. I really like the way you are addressing everyday, seemingly small temptations in your sermons for adults and teenagers alike. The world has many insidious evils that numb us to, to its perils. However, I note with amusement your perennial battle with getting Aussies in your congregation to express themselves loudly and publicly. One day, you'll get our understatedness. Perhaps you do not now. Perhaps you do already get that understatedness, but you just can't resist requesting something more American from us in our communication. By the way, I think your congregation's efforts in the flood aftermath spoke volumes. May God bless you all. Love and blessings to you and your family. Sue from Tasmania. Amen? Beautiful. You know, as I was going over some of these, and these are literally just a few of the testimonies that we get. Some of them are, are really long and beautiful, and some of them are frankly really heartfelt like the, and, and painful to read, like the, the two young men there that are in the nursing home in Sweden. And when you read these and when you hear them, it just gets you to thinking about the fact that these are real people. Amen? 
real people, they're not just emails, they're real people that are in real places, whether it's in America or Estonia, I got one this week from Estonia, or Jamaica, or even here in Australia. And I just think it would be so amazing if these real people could come to our church and tell us their testimonies. How would that be? Not just reading, but actually hearing testimonies from some of the people that have been benefited by our church's programs. Can you say amen? Okay, great. Well, your wish is my command. I'd like to invite Jerry and Dinica to come up here. Why don't we give them a hand? This is Jerry and Dinica Depute, and they're coming to us all the way from Tasmania, and I'm not going to tell you any more than that because I want to interview them, and you can meet them for yourselves. Thank you. Okay, so uh, Jerry, Dinica, we had breakfast yesterday morning. Uh, at Sozo. How was the breakfast, by the way? So-so. It was so-so. So-so at Sozo. Um, but that, yesterday was not the first time we had met. Um, where are you from? Okay. Um, a bit of a history lesson here. Both Dinek and I are Dutch migrant children. We came out to Australia in 1956 and 1957. We were both brought up in the Reformed... Uh, church in Holland and here in Australia, for which we were thankful mm. because of the pure biblical background that we received. We've been married for 47 years. Amen. You. And according to Genesis 2 verse 20, God has provided me with a suitable helper. And I'll praise his name for that. Amen. Now, we're all part of a story which is bigger than ourselves. Amen. And David has invited us to tell you part of our story. Yes. So do you want me to go ahead, oh, David? Oh, well, where you, so you were raised... For, now, you say in the Dutch Reformed Church. Now, some people here might not know what that means. That's, that's basically Presbyterian, strong, yeah. Calvinistic Presbyterian church. Very strong church, especially in Holland. Yes, and my biggest struggle and Dinnick's biggest struggle within that church was it was a doctrine of do good, get good, mm. do bad, get bad. And we found that so difficult to live with. Mm. Yet we were church attending all our lives with our children. And then one day I had an accident at work. I'm an industrial, I was an industrial electrician and I got a severe back injury. So I was bedridden. Prior to this, my wife, Dinica, had been watching a guy by the name of Jimmy Swaggart. On American tel- evangelist. American evangelist on TV. And I said to her, Dinica, don't watch this guy. I'll bet you at the end of the show, he'll be asking you for money. And sure enough, he did, and I felt justified. Some weeks later, I was bedridden. Love watching the footy on TV. Dinica says, let me help you to the couch. You can watch TV. Me and the children are going to church. I said, off you go. I'm laughing because I know the story. I'm sorry. I'm laying on that bed, on the couch, sorry. I could not move. Dinica turned the TV on, and guess who came on? Jimmy Swaggart. I thought, oh, no, Dinica, what have you done to me? Did she purposely put Jimmy Swaggart on? Purposely. Purposely, okay. Yes, she's that sort of woman. Yeah. <laughs> she's a suitable helpmeet is what she is. Exactly. So I thought, well, I, 
I, you see, in those days, we didn't have remote controls. Our TV had three knobs. One to turn it on and off, one for the sound, and one for the channels. So no remote controls. I couldn't do Those anything. Those were hard days. I was stuck. Those were hard days. So I turned my back to the TV, and I thought, I don't have to watch him. But I had to listen. So you literally turned around on the couch? Yes. With difficulty. Then, Dinica came home towards the end of that program, and I was in tears. Yes. I found him a blubbering mess. <laughs> this man had shown me that there was such a thing as a personal relationship available to me. Yes. This, this doctrinal stuff, it was just, it was man-made. Mm. It wasn't what God wants for us. Yeah. And that was the start of our journey. Beautiful. How many years ago was that, Jerry? 1986. Okay. Yep. Okay, what happened then? So you, you hear the gospel. I mean, Denica's already, already on this journey. So you hear the... I'll take that. Got it. So you hear this story, and or you hear this sermon. You're a blubbering mess. She comes home. What happens then? Where does your journey go from there? We, again, started going deeper and deeper into the scriptures. Denica at this time, was bedridden. <laughs> I came home from work because I was a shift worker, but I went into day shift to care for my wife. All she was doing during the day was listening to sermons, reading the Bible. I'd come home from work and I'd get sermonettes. <laughs> and I thought, wish she would do something to get better because I can't put up with this much longer. <laughs> this led us to believers' baptism Just because the bottom of it within the Reformed Church, we were baptised as infants. This led to believer's baptism. Believer's baptism then led us into the charismatic churches. Okay. So we've gone the full gamut of strict Calvinism, full-on Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism, yep. And here we are now, it's the A-ism. <laughs> we are not Seventh-day Adventists. We go to a Baptist church in our community. Correct. I was getting to that. <laughs> However, again, our, our spiritual journey, we have been married 47 years. We've moved over 20-odd times, relocated to different mining sites, to different work situations. Mm. And in that time, we could see God breaking down the church wall barriers. Mm. We were coming across people who weren't Reformed Church, who loved God. Who loved God. And, and, and it was just amazing. Dinica was doing a course through the Seventh-day Adventist ministry of our local radio, and it said, there will be no door knockers. I said, go ahead, have fun. So she was doing that, but she'd requested a DVD. One day, there was a knock at the door. No door knockers. No door knockers. But this guy stood there, he's from El Salvador, a Seventh-day Adventist minister, yep. Alfredo Campos was his name and he introduced himself and I thought what have we got here <laughs> so I had to let him in I, I could not leave him standing there and at that time we were going through a very tumultuous experience in our personal mm. lives yes and this man reached out 
and prayed with us. He walked in, he sensed there's something going on here which is not good, which is not right. And he picked up on that. And we're so pleased that the love of God breathed his spirit into yes. that situation. Also at and one it was time, a prayer, just the power of that just prayer. Just the power of a prayer. Wow. I was working at the Beaconsfield Gold Mine. This may be familiar to some of you people through Beyond the Search. There was one aspect there where we all need to be saved. And there were those two miners who got saved at Beaconsfield in the mine in Tasmania. I was working alongside that mine on a special project. I had an engineer from Western Australia who happened to be a Seventh-day Adventist. So this became quite clear that he was and I wasn't. But we worked together well. One day I had a very, very bad electric shock. It was high voltage and I woke up in the ambulance and I could just hear somebody say, before you go, just a minute. <laughs> That's not, I don't know what... Is this normal? It was the voice of the Lord. <laughs> And this man, this Seventh-day Adventist engineer, crawled into that ambulance, grabbed my hand, and he said, Lord God, don't let this man die. Mm. And it worked. Amen. Obviously. When he said just before you go, did he mean like go in the ambulance or before you go? No, before ambulance, David, please. Okay, okay, Not a problem. and, and, And all this time... God is working in us and yes. he's putting us through the, the difficult areas of our lives and we find ourselves now through Hope TV, yep. through Hope Channel on the radio. Dinica, you, you say something. Through Life Bearers, we've been constantly watching and listening and just can't get enough of David, of James, Amen. of Jeffrey. Of Ty Gibson. I even tried Ty's sandwich with... Yeah, yeah, his crazy sandwich. Some of you might know about that crazy sandwich with bananas, chocolate, blueberries. We've got a photo. We've got a photo. I've got the photo. (laughs) So I went to Tasmania. I went to Tasmania last year, ended up at the Seventh-day Adventist camp meeting. And so after, I think, the first day that I spoke, you approached me, both of you, and you said, hey, you were kind of like... Yeah, we're not seven. Hey, day can Avengers. we be here? Is this cool? All right, David, that's enough. I'll take over. <laughs> because of Dinica's studies, we were encouraged to go to that camp meeting specifically to listen to David. We travelled 50 kilometres every day to listen to David. Oh, beautiful. It just seems that every time I meet David, it costs me money. He had okay, one, that's he, enough. Turn these microphones off. He had one session there and he said, now if you're really interested, there's a DVD that you can buy in that building over there and blah, blah, blah. So I walked in there. $400 later, I had a boot full of DVDs. <laughs> I didn't do that. I wasn't selling those things. Yesterday, the, uh, yesterday, the other day, we had breakfast together and I said, David, what's the dress code in your church? He said, anything from board shorts, thongs, and Hawaiian shirts. He told me a porky pie, because I can't see any of them. <laughs> I told some people a porky pie this morning. They asked me where I was from, and I said Nelson Bay, which is quite correct, because we're travelling around Australia. We came from Nelson Bay to get here. <laughs> but we are from Tasmania. And when that first, uh, that the first time David spoke, I went up to him, and we talked, and I said, but there's a problem. 
I said, I love your ministry. Oh, we're encouraged by it. We, we, we just want to encourage you with the words you're doing, the work you're doing. Beautiful. And he said, what's the problem? I said, we're not Seventh-day Adventists. And he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes. Beautiful. And all of a sudden a burden had lifted because I thought, this man is doing what I'm trying to do is break down the barriers. Mm. And the barriers of doctrinal standards. You. And I just love this guy. I love his ministry, love his wife, love his family. And we just thank you so much that as I'm standing here, I'm looking at the body of Christ. Amen. Yes, you are. And, and, and it doesn't matter. We can do nothing to, to, to save ourselves. That's right. Except I just thank you for... God's love, should we go sit God's presence. Should we go sit down? I shall go and sit over No, here. should we go sit down? Please yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we're just overwhelmed by the presence of God Amen. in our lives, in other people's lives, and we are constantly opening ourselves up to hear from God, no matter what denomination, Yeah, because it's not a question that will be asked when we stand before him. Mm. And I just thank you for your time, and we pray God's blessing over you all, and especially the ministry of this church. Amen. Can we say amen? Let's give him a hand. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Danica. God bless you both. Now, you didn't say everything. You missed a few things in the script I gave you there. (laughs) Oh, man, it's so beautiful to think that there are people all over the world, even at the bottom of the world in Tasmania, Hearing the gospel. Can you say amen? So thrilling. All right. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jonah. Join me there, book of Jonah, right toward the end, as you know, of the Old Testament. We continue our study of Jonah. Our series titled, In the Felly of Abish. Now, let's remind ourselves of where we are. I'm going to push that there, see if it's working. Good. So just three or four quick slides to remind ourselves of where we came from last week. Last week we were in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and we had that really pregnant passage of Scripture there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, does anyone remember? A second time. And we concluded, among other things last week, that Yahweh is the God of second chances. Another slide from last week, as a recipient of Yahweh's mercy, patience, and saving judgment, is Jonah ready to extend that mercy to others? He's on an errand now to Nineveh. Will he be able to extend the mercy to others that he himself has been the beneficiary of? Now, we noted this last week, that a number of textual indicators are setting us up for an unexpected outcome to this amazing book. Right, There's already been all along, we're here on our, what is this, our fifth presentation. We've already been hint after hint, indication after indication that that what we might think is going to happen as a Jewish reader of Jonah's account is not what's actually going to happen. We're being set up for an unexpected and an unforeseen ending. We're going to talk about that now. So here we are in our fifth of six episodes, right? We're graying out all of the episodes that we've been through. So we've been through the first half. Right? The setup, the build up, the speak up. We're now in the second half. The book of Jonah, very symmetrical in its basic structure. Okay, we'll return to this slide a little bit later. But now we're in the build up. 
Jonah and the Gentiles. We're in Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to read the rest of chapter 3. Next week will be in Jonah chapter 4, and uh, we'll wrap up Jonah chapter 4. Last, next week will be our final sermon on the book of Jonah. And Joel will come back about a week after that, and I'll be away for the next four weeks at Light Bearer's Convocation and filming the next episode of Table Talk, or the next season of Table Talk. So our presentation today, sermon today, is titled, Scene 5, Yahweh, the Great and Gracious Elohim. Yahweh, the Great and Gracious Elohim. And so let's remind ourselves of this quotation that we've looked at several times. This is from Kevin Youngblood's book, Jonah, God's Scandalous Mercy. And he says there, remarking on the prayer that Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish, there was a shallowness to that prayer. We've already noted this. We won't review it here. But the shallowness of Jonah's repentance shapes the remainder of the narrative. We're going to see how that shallowness, the shallowness of his repentance, I use repentance in quotation marks, works its way out. This is going to become really, really obvious to us here. Let's go to Jonah chapter 3. Let's read verses 4, 5, and maybe a little bit of 6. Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, and Jonah began to enter the city. What city is he entering, everyone? What's that city called? Nineveh, very good. And Jonah began to enter the city the first, uh, on the first day's walk, or literally one day's walk. Then he cried out and he said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. In, in the Hebrew language, it's just four words, or five words, rather. F- five words. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, very terse, very succinct, very short and abbreviated message. Verse 4 and Jonah began, uh, verse 5, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. We'll just stop there for now. So several things that we want to note, first of all, not only do we see a reluctant prayer that Jonah the prophet prays from the belly of the fish, we're now going to see a rather reluctant proclamation. Even here, there are textual indicators that Jonah is only begrudgingly going about his duty. In other words, he's not had this amazing conversion experience inside of the fish. He's now fully understanding and aware of him as a recipient of Yahweh's tremendous grace and mercy, and he's now ready to communicate that. That would be an oversimple, in fact, an incorrect reading of the text. We We are in place after place, situation after situation, in nuance after nuance and subtlety after subtlety, being alerted to the fact that Jonah is only reluctantly, only half-heartedly, only begrudgingly going about his tasks, whether it's the task of praying or now the task of proclamation. Here are at least six reasons to believe that Jonah is going along with the task of proclaiming to Nineveh its destruction in a very begrudging and half-hearted manner. Number one, we've experienced serious reluctance up to this point. Up to this point, Jonah fled to Tarshish. He finds himself, you know, in the, uh, quite uh, apart from his desire, in the belly of a fish. So we see significant reluctance on the part of the prophet up to this point. And we have no indication, except for an external cooperation to go to Nineveh, that there's been any heart change inside of Nineveh. Number two, we've talked about the rather shallow conversion that he had in the fish's belly. Right? There's no admission of wrong. There's no admission of guilt. There's no sense of, of, of forgiveness or an asking for forgiveness. Number three, this is quite fascinating. In both halves of the two halves of Jonah, in chapters 1 and 2, and also in chapters 3 and 4, a three-day journey occur- occurs in both. Right? Because Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. There's a three-day journey. And we just read a moment ago in Jonah chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3, or I should say last week we read it, that Nineveh was a three-day journey. 
Okay, now scholars debate exactly what that means. Does that mean it was three days across? That seems unlikely. That would be a gigantic city. We know that Nineveh wasn't that large. Scholars debate exactly what the precise meaning is of Nineveh, a three-day city. But the point is that the author of Jonah knew what it meant, and when he writes it, he is saying not only was Jonah three days in the fish, but Nineveh was a three-day journey. We mentioned that maybe this is a reference to the netherworld or that there was a three-day journey. Could be that. But notice in what we just read that even though Nineveh is a three-day journey, how many days did, did Jonah travel into the city? Did you notice it? One day. So if you go one day into a city that's a three-day journey, have you completed your task? No, you've just begun the task, right? That would be one-third of the, of the total task that's been in front of you. And so three-day journey, he goes one day in and begins his proclamation, and 40 days Nineveh will be overturned. Number four, notice that very uh, atypically for prophetic warnings, there is no thus saith the Lord. You find again and again these oracles of doom or these oracles of judgment in the Old Testament, and the prophets will often say, thus says the Lord, an oracle against Edom. Thus says the Lord, an oracle against Judah. Thus says the Lord, an oracle against Israel. There's none of that. Jonah's whole message, as the author of Jonah puts it into his mouth, is five simple words in the Hebrew. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. There's not a mention of Yahweh. There's not a mention of God. There's, not, there's just the most terse possible message. It's like, the, it's like the, 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 the petulant child that you say, clean your room, and he or she does the minimum possible requirement to get their room over the threshold of clean, marginally clean, passably clean. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and cry against it. And he literally says the least possible that he would have to say. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Number five, there's no reason for judgment given. Right? When God originally gave the commission to to Jonah back in chapter one, he said, go cry out against Nineveh because her wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah makes no mention of this. Jonah just says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. And then finally, number six, there's no indication of a possible repentance. So there are textual indicators that not only are we dealing with a reluctant prayer from the fish's belly, we're now dealing with a reluctant proclamation from the prophet's mouth. Yeah, 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 I'll go along with it. Not an inward renewal of the heart, but an outward compliance. We asked this question last week. week. Yes, Jonah is outwardly compliant, but is his heart renewed? And the author of Jonah is sending discernible, understandable signals to alert us to the fact that what's going on here is more of a capitulation, it's more of a compliance than a real move, movement by the, uh, a a movement of compassion and Yahweh's mercy. Jonah's obedience in proclaiming to Nineveh comes off like his prayer. It comes off as half-hearted. He goes one day into a three-day city and says five words. Fascinatingly, from that point on, if you take a look at the whole of Jonah, after verse 4, Jonah disappears. There's still going to be 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. There's going to be another six verses in this chapter, and there's not a mention of Jonah. Right? God says to Jonah, go into this city, a three-day journey. He goes in one day. He makes this, you know, short sort of announcement, and yet the response of the Ninevites is overwhelmingly positive and unforeseen. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Okay, his half-heartedness stands out in sharp contrast, as we're going to see, to the Ninevites' repentance. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We've already been set up for this. 
because in Jonah's original interaction with Gentiles on the ship that was bound for Tarshish, Jonah comes off as fatigued, he comes off as, as uh, aloof, he comes off as disinterested, but it's the, the mariners that are actually worshiping, calling out, crying, and eventually even praising Yahweh, Jonah's own God. And so there's going to be this amazing contrast that we're going to see. Now, one of the most interesting things is actually found right in verse 4. And it's something that you might not, well, you wouldn't pick up in the English. In fact, I looked at like 60 English translations this week, and none of them give the sense of ambiguity that the Hebrew does. Okay, I want to introduce you to this idea here. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4 says, Then he cried out, Yet forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown. And one of the words there is hafach. That's the word, overthrown. Nineveh will be hafach. Okay? Now check this out. The word here, the Hebrew word, means to turn about, to turn over, to change, or to overturn, like to flip something upside down. And you can see why that would kind of have the connotation of destruction, right? If you take a cake and you turn it upside down, it's destroyed. If you take a plate of food, you turn it upside down, it's destroyed. So the idea that, that Nineveh will be hafach, it will be overturned, it will... There's the idea, but there's this other... There's this other nuance, this other element contained within the Hebrew word, and it it can mean to become, to change, or even to be converted. Now, this is, let me just give you a couple instances of how that word, that same Hebrew word, works itself out in other passages in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5, you might remember this story. When Balaam, the rebellious prophet, goes to curse Israel, God is going to hafach. He's going to change that curse into a blessing. Watch this. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned, there's our word, the curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. Now, I want you to notice a word that we could substitute in this context is reform. Reform. The Lord your God reformed that curse into a blessing. It was intentioned as a curse, but God reformed it and turned it into a blessing. Two more quick instances, both of them from 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is the story of the anointing of Saul by the prophet Samuel. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. This is Samuel speaking to the first king of Israel, Saul. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be hafach into another man. You will be turned into another man. You'll be reformed. You'll be changed. You'll be converted. Just three verses later in the same chapter, so it was when Saul had turned his back from Samuel that God gave him another heart. He hafach him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. Now with this in mind, there is an ambiguity in Jonah's message that's actually very fascinating. The passage could be rendered like this. Then he cried out and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be reformed. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be changed. There is an ambiguity within the very text of Jonah's message. The warning of Jonah is suggestive and ambiguous. And the question I suppose for us is, does Jonah himself discern this ambiguity? All indicators within the narrative are that he does not. He does not discern the the ambiguity within the word hafak, that the idea is not only might it be overturned, but maybe it will just be turned around. Maybe there will be a repentance. Maybe there will be a reformation. Maybe it won't just be utter destruction from a prophet of Israel who, like the rest of Israel, could not conceive that something that was good for Nineveh could also be good for Israel. I mean, just by definition. 
in the us and them world of Jew and Gentile, in the us and them world of Israel and Assyria, if it's good for Assyria, it's bad for us. And if it's bad for us, it's good for Assyria. Jonah's us and them world is having a really difficult time compartmentalizing this radical notion. Something could be good for Israel and good for Assyria. Now, we've already noted that Nineveh was a city belonging to Yahweh. That God had an interest in Nineveh because God's people were there. God's children were there. God is not parochial. He's not provincial. God doesn't occupy an us and them reality. God occupies an us reality. Can somebody say amen? There is no bifurcation of humanity in God's basic reality. And and Jonah sees the world as many of us do in us and them. We're going to get to this in just a second. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Kevin Youngblood in his book, God's Scandalous Mercy, says, In Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, however, the ambiguity appears to be aimed at the prophet himself. Why? Why the ambiguity? He says, to expose Jonah's bitterness toward Assyria. If this is the word Yahweh used when he gave the message to Jonah in chapter 3, verse 2, Jonah may have made his journey to Nineveh under the impression that Nineveh's destruction was inevitable. The impression, however, was not created by Yahweh, but by Jonah's own deep desire to see Assyria destroyed. Now, this is where the textual indicators are bringing us, and we're not even to chapter 4 yet. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to find that all of these clues that we're picking up on about an unforeseen and an unexpected ending are actually driving us exactly where we suspect the author to have been driving us. Because when we get to chapter 4 next week, we're going to find that Jonah is not pleased, he's not happy, he's not elated that Nineveh has been spared. I love this idea that what's really going on here is not that Yahweh said, it's inevitable, I will destroy, but that Jonah interpreted what Yahweh said through his own paradigm, through his own prejudice, through his own bias, and he assumed, as many of us do, that what we are saying about God is what God is saying about himself. I'm going to say that again. Many of us assume that what we are saying about God is actually an accurate reflection of what God is saying. In fact, as, as what God says comes through the channels of humanity, we can, and sometimes do, I would say oftentimes do, change, sully, manipulate, and even pervert what God is actually saying. And we see this even here with Jonah. One final uh, slide here from Youngblood. His deep-seated dislike for Assyria dilutes Jonah's experience of Yahweh's mercy, preventing him from sharing Yahweh's gracious disposition toward Nineveh. Don't miss that. Nineveh, Nineveh will not receive a message of mercy and of forgiveness and of compassion from Jonah, not because that's not Yahweh's posture toward Nineveh, but because it's not Jonah's posture. How many of us communicate in ways both subtle and not so subtle that the world really is an us and them, us Seventh-day Adventists and you non-Seventh-day Adventists, us Christians and you non-Christians, us Protestants and you non-Protestants, us theists and you non-theists or atheists. Right? There are many different bifurcations and divisions of reality, and, and we tend to view the world because it gives us a sense of belonging, it gives, it gives us a sense of place, it gives us a sense of identity to divide the world into us and them. But God's world, again, is an us world. 
And when God's us message goes to Jonah, Jonah takes that message and appears to at least undersell it and perhaps even downright pervert it and communicates not an us, not an inclusivity, not a positivity toward an enemy nation. Yeah, they might be Israel's enemies, but are they God's enemies? He takes that message and makes it his own. Does this happen in our day and age? Can people take the message of Scripture, the message, and we're in the Old Testament. We're in the Old Testament. We are not at this point yet in the glorious and grand New Testament where God in the person of Jesus comes down and opens the doors wide to the prostitute, to the centurion, to the leper, to the tax collector, to the Samaritan. We're still in the Old Testament. And yet many of us would feel really comfortable ostracizing, alienating, and and looking down with doom and judgment on others. Is this the message of God? Is the message of God that God has given to the church to communicate wrath and anger and judgment? I'm not suggesting that there are not times when that is the appropriate message. But fascinatingly here, we have a prophet of doom on an errand in which the message that he's given is sufficiently ambiguous to communicate not a message of doom, but also a message of the promise and the possibility of reform and transformation. Not out of the threat of death or of, or of hostility, but out of a drawing, a wooing, an inviting from Yahweh's love and mercy and grace. Ah, oh, something else is going on here, something really cool Man, there's so much in this, and I'm just going to make a couple announcements, just a couple slides, observations here. There's, th- these are tips of icebergs that we could explore and would be mind-blowing, but we'll just quickly note them. Well, part of the message here, and this might be heavy for some of you to endure, you know, just wear this, and trust me, this is what the text is saying. If you don't believe it, look at it yourself. In fact, do that with everything that I say. Prophets can deliver messages that they themselves do not really comprehend. Amen? Prophets can say things that they themselves are not in full possession of. Next slide here. Prophets can be less than fully converted and still be used for good by Yahweh. Did you know that? A prophet, a preacher, a spokesperson for God can be used by God and not himself or herself be fully in possession of an experience with Yahweh's mercy and character. It's possible. Prophets are people, they can be stubborn, they can be ignorant, they can be fallible. Church members can be stubborn, they can be ignorant, they can be fallible. Seventh-day Adventists can be stubborn, they can be ignorant, they can be fallible, but Yahweh cannot. Can you say amen? See, here's a a reorientation away from me and my denomination and my church, and I've pretty much got it all together and my congregation pretty much has it all together, to an orientation to God who actually has it all together. Right? When I met Jerry and Denica there at the Tasmanian camp meeting, and they say, hey, look, we're not Seventh-day Adventists. This is an opportunity to build a bridge or a wall. And I love these two people, and I'm so glad that God moved on my heart and has moved upon my soul to extend bridges to people, not walls. Right? Many of us in our preaching of the love of Yahweh and the goodness of God and the forgiveness of Jesus and his amazing character, what we think we're saying is not what we're saying. What we think we're saying is not what people are hearing. Okay. Let's move now to the king's response. Let's read beginning in chapter, or verse 6, all the way to the end of the chapter. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. Bit of a unique phrase, that, the king of Nineveh. 
And he arose from his throne, and he laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, here's the king of Nineveh's decree, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Now, there is so much going on here. Let's start, first of all, with just a quick observation about the chiastic structure of the king's response to to the, the warning of Yahweh. Notice the ABBA structure, a structure that we would be familiar with up to this point in our study of Jonah. Notice this. First of all, he arose from his throne, which corresponds with he's going to sit in ashes. This is a radical, uh, this is unexpected for an ancient Near Eastern monarch. If you rise from your throne, it's to do something regal, it's to do something important, it's to do something august. But he rises from his throne to sit in ashes. And notice, he laid aside his robe to put on sackcloth. Okay? The chiastic structure and the language, the repetition, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, is designed to show you the thoroughness and the authenticity of the king's repentance. This is not the kind of repentance that Jonah has exhibited up to this point. In fact, Jonah in the belly of a fish doesn't say anything about his wrongs, doesn't ask for forgiveness, but notice how radically different the response of the king of Nineveh is. Jonah hadn't even said why Nineveh would be destroyed, and they themselves identify the the, the offending characteristics or the offending sins. They say, turn from your evil ways and the violence in your hands. There's no indication that Jonah has said any of this. But the Spirit has moved on their heart and pricked their conscience in the same way that the Spirit has moved on you many times in your life and pricked your conscience. And somebody just said something general and you heard something very specific because the Spirit told you that. The Spirit convicted you. The Spirit ministered to you. Check this out. Ten points. As contrasted with the half-hearted, shallow, and perfunctory repentance of Jonah. Look at the Ninevites' repentance. It becomes a model for biblical repentance. First of all, their repentance begins with belief in Yahweh's word. I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw that or not, but take a look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Man, that harkens back to the single most important text in the entire book of Genesis. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. This is steep. This whole passage is steeped in Genesis, and it's steeped in the Abrahamic narrative, as we have noted before. Abraham's response to Yahweh was to believe. The Ninevites' response to Yahweh is to believe. No wonder that the promise to Abraham was not a parochial or a provincial promise. It was a promise not about borders, but about blessings, about bringing the good news of Yahweh's goodness to the world. And so, as with the Abrahamic story, the Ninevite story begins here with belief in Yahweh's word. Number two, their repentance is followed by immediate, sincere actions. This is where true repentance separates itself from quasi-repentance or non-repentance. When an action follows the, the verbiage, I'm sorry. Are you behaving in a way that communicates you're sorry? I wish I hadn't behaved in that way. Does your behavior, do your actions intimate that what you're saying is the case? We all know that. We say actions speak. Number three. One of my favorite parts about this is that the word of Yahweh just destroys and dissolves all hierarchical distinction. 
Oh, this is amazing. Here you have an ancient Near Eastern monarch who is humbling himself down to the very level of his citizenry. You're sitting in ashes, I'm sitting in ashes. You're wearing sackcloth, I'm wearing sackcloth. Right? When the word of Yahweh comes, there's no us and them on the horizontal level, but neither is there an us and them on the vertical level. There's no kings and peasants. There's no rich and poor. There's no haves and have-nots. When the word of Yahweh comes, when God brings true repentance to people, there will be no vertical. There will be no socioeconomic. There will be no racial. There will be no national differentiation, and neither will, will there be horizontal. The king finds himself in the same boat, so to speak, as the common citizen. Number four, this is a grassroots movement that reaches the king. You get the sense that soon after the the Ninevites have heard the word of Jonah, they run with it. Jonah's not even mentioned in the rest of the passage. They lay hold on it. They hear the word of Yahweh, and even though it's given in a timid and somewhat recalcitrant way, the word of God is powerful. It can do things that we could never expect or anticipate. Can you say amen? God's word is powerful. It will not return to him void. The king is moved by the warning and he's moved by his own people's sincerity. Number six, he then publishes it for all to hear. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Number seven, quite an extreme response. I mean, there is hyperbole likely here. Uh, I don't want uh, uh, oxen drinking or cattle drinking or animals drinking and put them in sackcloth too, just to show, to use exaggerative language to show the depth of the repentance of Nineveh. Number eight, the centerpiece of this repentance is cry mightily to God. Number nine, their own identification of their sins, as we mentioned, and then their turning from sin. In 40 days, Nineveh will be, well, is it overthrown or is it turned around? And then finally, number 10, notice that they are not trusting in their own repentance. This is hugely contrasted with Jonah, who you might remember when he's in the belly of the fish. The climax of Jonah's repentance is, when I get out of this fish, if and when I get out of this fish, I will vow vows. Right? Trusting in his own righteous deeds, trusting in what he will do, but the the thoroughness and the, the authenticity of the Ninevites' response in repentance is not found in their own repentance, but it's found in Yahweh. It's not in what they have done. It's in what Yahweh has said and in his amazing mercy. Jesus uses Nineveh as a template, as a, as, a, as a case in point for what authentic repentance looks like. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jesus says, you want to know what repentance looks like? Go back and read that story. Go identify those 10 points. Maybe you can identify some of your own of what true repentance looks like. Here's an important point. The minimal revelation of Jonah, his short little five-word sermon, brought about repentance for the Ninevites, and yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, refused to repent despite God's very presence in Jesus. A minimal revelation brings about widespread repentance and reformation. And then Jesus comes, and he pleads, and he asks, and he begs, and he does everything possible, and there's just hard-heartedness. That's Jesus' point. Now, this is an important point here. We, we put this slide back up to identify that in each of these symmetrical episodes, the build-up, the, the, the set-up, the build-up, and the speak-up, we are invited by the author of Jonah to interpret the second episode in light of the first because there are parallels. Jonah's with Gentiles on the ship. Jonah's now with Gentiles in Nineveh. And so we're going to interpret these two in light of one another, and there's some really cool stuff. So let's compare the mariners on the ship the Gentile mariners, with the Ninevites. 
number of amazing similarities. First of all, they're both Gentiles and presumably idolatrous, i.e. non-Jewish people. Okay, number two. Both respond in a fearful situation. The mariners, there's a terrible storm. And now, Nineveh, destruction is coming. Number three. The, Nineveh, uh, the, the mariners cast lots, which I don't have time to go into this right now, but it's a very Jewish thing to do. It was the only form of divination allowed in Jewish culture. Divination. It's basically like rolling dice. Okay? So when the mariners are depicted as having cast lots, this is a subtle hint that the author of Jonah is giving you to say, hey, look, they're doing something that's pious. They're doing the right thing in the situation. Well, look at what happens here. Another very Jewish thing. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. That is the Jewish response to an oracle of doom from Yahweh. You're supposed to be making connections here. Both have immediate and sincere action. In both, animals are involved in the accounts. We'll talk about this next week. Animals involved with, obviously, the whale is involved, the great sea creatures involved in here. Even the animals respond. Number six, both cry out to God. Number seven, both upstage the reluctant prophet. In both cases, the Gentiles come off looking far better than the prophet, the prophet of Israel. Okay, number eight, three-day journey in both accounts, as we've mentioned. Number nine, both have unexpected outcomes. In the case of the mariners, the unexpected outcome is they actually worship Yahweh. In the case of Nineveh, they turn to God in repentance and preserve their city. And number 10, both receive Yahweh's mercy. So we're, dis- we're invited by the author to interpret these events in light of one another. And the punchline, as we've noted before and we'll note here again, is that in each case, this is the punchline. Salvation or deliverance comes from Yahweh. Can somebody say amen? That's the punchline for the mariners. It's also the punchline for Jonah when he's rescued by the fish, but he himself doesn't even discern the depth of his own fallenness and the need of his rescue. And it is the experience here of the Ninevites. Salvation belongs to that guy's God. They never even call him Yahweh. We'll get to that point as we close. That'll be our final point. James chapter 2 verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That sounds like Jonah. And then this single sentence, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can somebody say amen to that? I'll tell you, you and I'd be in a mess if that wasn't true. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is the Nineveh story. It's the Jonah story. Jonah struggled to reconcile the good of Assyria with the good of Israel. He perceived if it's good for us, it must be bad for them. And if it's good for them, it must be bad for us. Now, I'm going to spend the last about 10 or 15 minutes talking about the elephant in the room. This isn't just the elephant in the room. It's the elephant in Christian theology. And it's, it's going to take a little bit of thinking, and I'm going to race through this, but I'm going to talk about the tip of an iceberg here that I guarantee every single person in this room has wrestled with. You might not be a, philosoph- a philosopher, you might not be a theologian, but there's not a person in this room who hasn't wondered about what we're going to talk about right now. The elephant in the room, okay? And the elephant in the room can be found in the final verse of chapter 3. And God saw the works of the Ninevites, that they turned from their evil ways, And God relented. And God, what did he do? He relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. We are here confronted with the conditionality of God's judgments and prophecies. God says, I will do this. There's a change, and God says, I will now no longer do that. Let's talk about that. 
Yahweh's character, there's the three slides that we've already noted before. Yahweh's character and his loving, saving intentions never change. Can somebody say amen? We noted this before. But often our actions prompt him to accommodate a new situation. Such as, why would God put one of his prophets in a fish? Well, God wouldn't put one of his prophets in a fish unless the prophet put himself in a position where God had no choice but to put him in a fish. God accommodates decisions made by creatures, by people. Okay, let's continue. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Simply put, God's accommodation to our failings and fallings and rebellions is what brings about, finally, our salvation. So this is communicated forcefully in Jeremiah chapter 18. This is where God says to Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house and look at the way the potter shapes and forms a vessel on his wheel. Some he makes into bowls. Others he makes into vases. Others he makes into plates. Look at what the potter does. Look at, he says, look at what the potter does. And then he says to Jeremiah, the instant I speak concerning a nation, to pluck it up, to pull it down, and to destroy it. Sounds like the oracle of doom against Nineveh. If, I've underlined that for you here, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, and then this is implied, then, then I will relent, that's the word we just saw a moment ago in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. The reverse is also true. Look at what God says here. Same passage. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to build it up and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I saw to benefit it. Okay. So what's happening here is that God is reacting to freedom. He is reacting to the decisions that his creatures make, and this resonates profoundly and powerfully with the basic freedom, love, risk, responsibility paradigm that I've talked about here in this church before, and I've written about it extensively in my book, God in Pain, if you want to get your hands on that. But basically, there are four ideas that follow one from the other. Number one, love requires freedom. Number two, freedom involves risk. Number three, risk entails responsibility. And then finally, responsibility is the only thing that enables moral growth. So here's a good example. This morning, I came in my Nissan Pulsar chariot to church, and my son drove me. First time I've ever come to church that way. Yesterday was his 16th birthday. Passed his driving test and drove me to church. Now, for those of you parents who have had teenagers that you have given the keys to and then seemingly against all good sense gotten into the car, in the driver, in the passenger seat, are you taking, is this a risk? Yeah, it's a risk that's brought about by love and freedom. Love requires freedom. Freedom entails risk. Risk involves responsibility, but the only way that Landon or any other person is going to learn to make good decisions, morally superior decisions, is if they're given opportunity to make those choices. Well, God understands this as good as any parent, better than any parent. Now watch what happens here. All throughout Scripture, we find God doing things like this. God relents. We've seen that twice. God responds. God reacts. God repents. God adjusts. Can you say amen? Now, this is what's key. All of these assume and affirm the reality and the authenticity of creaturely free will. Right? They're, they're assuming that God is actually investing human beings with genuine free will, with genuine choice, and the choices that we make then reverberate and actually impact the choices that God makes. 
Nineveh is a case in point. I will destroy Nineveh in 40 days. Nineveh returns. They repent. So God says, I repent. I relent. I won't do what I said I would do. So God now adjusts or accommodates a situation that came about as a result of the free will of individuals. So far, so good? Okay. It seems profoundly incoherent to say that God predetermines the free actions of mankind. Right? How how could we say, God predetermined your free actions? Does that even make any sense? It's a square circle. Right? It's a dry desert. Or it's a wet desert. It's a dry ocean. It's a modest Kardashian. Right? It's incoherent. If our actions are predetermined, they are not free. And if they are free, they are not predetermined. So what do we do? We have a God who is all-powerful, omnipotent, and who is sovereign over the universe. Yes. But we are able to make choices that then cause God to respond, to react, to relent, or to adjust, or to accommodate decisions I've made. How do we hold these two things in tensions? Tension that God is sovereign and I am free. And the answer is not easily. The answer is not easily. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, verses like this assume creaturely freedom. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will choose to serve the Lord. You choose and I'll choose. You choose. The reality of choice is assumed here. This is uh, Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. How long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, choose to follow him. If Baal is the Lord, choose to follow him. God is taking our freedom and the risk inherent in that freedom seriously. Make the right choice. So people have tried to wrestle through this idea. All of Scripture is premised on the reality of free will, both God's free will and humanity's free will. Now, historically, this has been dealt with in one of three ways, okay? When people think about God and the free will of creatures, they, they basically create systems. And Jerry and Denica mentioned that they were raised in a, a Dutch reform system, and the Dutch reform system would be number one, Calvinism. And the strong emphasis in the reform tradition or in the Calvinistic tradition is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over the universe. Nothing happens outside of his purvey and nothing happens outside of his providence. Another way to deal with God and choice, sovereignty and free will, is what's called Arminianism. Now, Arminianism is named after a 16th century Dutch theologian named Jacobus Arminius. And Arminius emphasized, yes, God is sovereign, but there's also free will. And then a more recent addition to this conversation is what is called open theism. Open theism suggests that the future is not only open for human beings in terms of who will I marry and what will I do and where will I end up, but in some sense is also open for God too. Okay? So these are the three systems that human beings have attached to try and understand how God's sovereignty relates to human choice. Now, I'll just give these to you very briefly in some sort of illustrations. This would be how you would show Calvinism in a simple diagram, right? Looking forward, starting in point A, as God creates, there will only be one possible outcome because God has ordained that outcome. 
There's no such thing as an alternative here. There's no such thing as an option here. And the Calvinist might say, well, wait a minute. Why did God say that he would destroy Nineveh if he knew he wasn't going to? Right? They would interpret what looks like a change in God's mind as as basically what God was implanting and intending to do all along because he had ordained it this way. It's not just that it happened this way. It's that he ordained it this way. So there really only is one show in town. And that show is God's sovereign choice. This is sometimes referred to as predestination or determinism. Okay? Now, this is how you might draw Arminianism. Arminianism looks like this. You have not only the one solid line. That is to say, God knows what your choices will be. That's the solid line. He knows what your choices will be. He knows the decisions that you will make. But he also knows that there were other possibilities that you could have made but didn't. Or better, wouldn't. So, so God knows what will happen definitively and certainly, but he also knows that things could have been other than they were. Okay? Now, for those of you that are fascinated by this idea, those other little dots there, those lines that are possible outcomes, is what is referred to as middle knowledge. Middle knowledge. God's awareness of alternate realities or possibilities. For example, I married Violetta. And we had Landon and Jabel, but I could have married someone else and Landon and Jabel would have never come. And God is aware of that reality. There's no sense in talking about this in a, in a Calvinistic worldview because there are no other options because God ordained the only option. Follow? Okay, here's our final option then. Oh, by the way, I just thought this was really cool. I looked, uh, just kind of refreshing myself on Arminianism and all of this in preparation for the sermon. I looked up Arminianism and Wikipedia yesterday and I, I like this. Many Christian denominations have been influenced by Arminian views on the will of man being freed by grace prior to regeneration. There's the emphasis on free will. And look at this. This is cool. The Baptists in the 16th century, the Methodists in the 18th century, and the Seventh-day Adventists in the 19th century. So Seventh-day Adventists have historically been well and truly in the Arminian camp. We are not Presbyterian. We are not Reformed. We don't believe in predestination. We believe we put a strong emphasis on choice and free will. Is that true? So here's the final diagram. Open theism would look something like this. Open theism would look like, well, in any given situation, you have lots of decisions you could make. I could decide to jump down or not to jump down. I could decide to run across the stage or I could decide to moonwalk across the stage. Right? That I, at any given juncture in your life, you're faced with lots of possible choices, okay? And so that's all these different lines that go out. But choices that you make, for example, jumping down, well, now they create other choices that need to be made. Like, well, do I want to get back on the stage? Well, I do, actually, so I'm going to go over here. But if I had never gone off the stage, I wouldn't be faced with the question of, do I want to now get back on it? So open theism says that, in fact, what we have is thousands and millions of choices, and then our thousands and millions of choices impact others in their thousands and millions of choices, and there's just this whole symphonic, seemingly infinite variety, or, or, or uh, this whole, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for here, this grand smorgasbord of opportunities. There could have been, there could have been any number of millions and trillions of possible outcomes, Okay? So that's what I put over here on the right. All of these are actual possibilities and actual probabilities. Now, this is very important. The open theist says, this is how God knows the future. God doesn't know the future because he decided what the future would be, Calvinism. God doesn't know the future because he knows what it will be, and he knows that other things are possible, but they won't actually happen. 
They say God knows the future because he knows every possible outcome of every potential interaction of every agent. So nothing could happen that would surprise God. Okay, that's called open theism. Now here's just a few quick statements from Ellen White that are quite interesting. Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She says, he who is mighty in counsel has taken his survey of all the possibilities and probabilities. Okay, so there are possibilities and there are probabilities and God is aware, aware of them. She says again, when we place ourselves in his hands, he shows us the possibilities and the probabilities in front of us. And he bids us to go for help to the one infinitely higher than earring human beings. Again, God is working out his great plan for eternity. His agencies are to be multiplied. We are all acting our part in obedience to the laws of cause and effect. So I make a decision that impacts your life. Well, we can be sure this cannot be determinism. It cannot be Calvinism. It could be Arminianism, or it could be something approximating open theism. So we've moved away from the first option for a variety of reasons, And we're moving toward an option that embraces and emphasizes creaturely free will. A couple more statements here from Ellen White. We do not comprehend the infinite condescension of Christ in consenting to war with the the enemy or the infinite risk he ventured in engaging in the controversy on our behalf. This has troubled a lot of people. They've said, wait a minute, how can God have taken an infinite risk if he knew for certain the outcome? How can something be risky if you know the outcome definitively? It's a very good question. Think about the insider trading of stocks. It's illegal to have inside information when trading stocks because you take out the risk element. If you know that the stock is going to go up, it's not risky to buy in. If you know that the stock is going to tank, it's not risky to sell. In what sense is it risky for Jesus to come if God knows that it's all going to work out in the end? This is not an easily answered question. A final one here. Christ was conqueror over the powers of darkness and took the infinite risk of consenting to war with the enemy that he might conquer him on our behalf. I guess there is one more. He not only became an exile from the courts of heaven for us, he took the risk of failure and of eternal loss. Okay, let me tie this up. So we have three options here, Calvinism, Arminianism, and open theism. I can say for myself that I am absolutely certain that I am not a Calvinist. Number one is unappealing to me on a variety of levels, theologically, experientially, etc. So I just take that off the table, okay? Number two I find really attractive, and number three I find elements of it also really attractive. I would say for me, I think if you could draw a line halfway between Arminianism and open theism, something like option 2.5, I would be right in there. Something that emphasizes God's sovereignty, but also does not deny the reality of creaturely freedom and actual choices. Now, here's the punchline of everything I want to bring to you. You'll notice something very interesting. Verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. He brings a message from Yahweh, but then something fascinating and purposeful happens. The author of Jonah stops using Yahweh, and he starts using the more general Elohim, which means God. Let me read that to you, verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed Elohim, not Yahweh, Elohim. Verse 8, in the king's decree, cry mightily to Elohim. 
Verse 9, who can tell if Elohim will turn and relent? Verse 8, then Elohim saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way, and God, Elohim, relented from his disaster. Why the switch? Because Jonah knows the covenant name of God. His name is Yahweh. The Ninevites do not. The Ninevites are just responding to God. God, big God in the sky. God, Elohim. On the ship, when, when the storm had come, they said, they said, cry out to your Elohim, to your God. Yahweh is like the name David. It's like the name Blair or Emma. It's God's covenantal name. Elohim is like saying human. It's not exactly that, but it's very close to that. So when the Ninevites respond, they don't respond to Yahweh because they don't yet know Yahweh. They're just responding to Elohim. Transitioning people from the general Elohim, God, to the personal Yahweh is the calling of the church. It's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to say, it's not just God. It's not just Big Daddy in the sky. Let me show you what he's like. Of course, Jesus was himself the incarnate Yahweh. Let me show you what God is like. The call of the church is to take people who believe in the universe or God, or people will say, I, I believe there's some purpose, something out there. Friends, this, the, the world is filled with people who believe that something is going on out there. And the call of the church, as was the call of Jonah, is to take people who have a, a preliminary or, or a perfunctory interest in or fear of or curiosity about Elohim and introduce them to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who forgives, the God who is gracious, the God who is amazing. Psalm 113, praise Yahweh! Not just God, no, Yahweh! Why? Praise, O servants of Yahweh! Thank you, Mel and, and Britt and Karen and everybody, uh, Dylan and, and everybody for your service today. That was great. Brendan, praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. Not just an Elohim, not just a God, but this God. Blessed be the name of Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Let Yahweh's name be praised. Yahweh is high above the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh, our Elohim? Can you say amen? I hope you are more enthusiastic than Jonah was. Who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap. The Ninevites were needy and they were in the dust and they were in an ash heap. They were covered in sackcloth and ashes. They were responding to a nameless Elohim. But Jonah could have and should have. And I hope that I would have introduced them not just to Elohim and his wrath, but to Yahweh and his mercy. That he may sit with him, princes, With princes of his people, he grants barren women a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise Yahweh. Transitioning people from the general Elohim to the personal Yahweh is our calling from the general idea of some God to the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and his name is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob. This is not a task, church, to be endured grudgingly. Oh, I guess I'll have to tell people about God's amazing grace. 
or worse yet, announce judgment on them because we're just sure that we're going to end up on the right side of judgment and all of them will finally be destroyed. I've had people say to me, I can't wait for Jesus to come and do away with all this wickedness. I'm like, me too. (laughs) Can we be sure he won't be doing away with our wickedness? This is not a task to be endured grudgingly, but one to be enjoyed, cherished, and loved. Salvation or deliverance belongs to Yahweh. And so we conclude, first we receive Yahweh's salvation into ourselves, and then we release it to the world. We receive to release. Jonah received Yahweh's pardon, mercy, and salvation, but he did not release it. He did not go in with enthusiasm and passion and a a desire to bring the good news of Yahweh's mercy and goodness to the world. How many of us in our moments think, man, I just can't wait for Jesus to come and just put an end to all this? Be careful. Be careful. Our prayer should be, Lord, wait a little longer. Let more be told of your goodness. Let more people, there's never going to be a time where we'll be converting people to Yahweh through eternal ages. So let's not hasten his second coming too much. Let's let people know how good Yahweh is. Let's let people know how good Jesus is. Let us praise Yahweh, the great and gracious Elohim. Father in heaven, we respond to you because you are awesome. This is not about us, it's about you, it's not about our response, it's about your actions. And today, we do not want to be Jonah's, begrudgingly, half-heartedly, and only reluctantly complying externally with religion. We want our hearts to be melted and moved by your compassion. We want to praise you with enthusiasm, with joy, with happiness on our lips. Father, there's a world wondering if there's a God, and if there's a God, what is he like? And Father, help us, the Kingscliff Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church and other Christian denominations that have the truth to, to stand in the gap and to announce the great good news that the Elohim that is out there, the Elohim that exists, is an amazing, gracious, kind, forgiving, saving God, and His name is Yahweh. Salvation belongs to Him. And in Jesus' name we pray, let everyone say, Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching, and take care.